Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. I am absolutely thrilled to be sitting here with John Tomasi, an exceptional mind and person, and on a personal note, uh, a former teacher of mine, a professor uh, at Brown University where I was an undergrad, my first introduction to political thought and political theory. Um, and in addition to being a wonderful teacher and a, a generous spirit, uh, John has done something somewhat contrarian and off the beaten path in a way, and he has left a fetid position at the top of the top of the academic career ladder, uh, a name professorship in in uh, natural theology and uh, political philosophy, to become the president of Heterodox Academy, uh, which is something we'll we'll be talking about. Uh, but I think of Heterodox Academy as an organization dedicated to making the university a place of open inquiry, a place of viewpoint diversity, a place where learning happens in good faith, uh, in pursuit of truth, and collaboratively. And uh, we live in strange times where some of the values that I just mentioned are actually not consensus. <laughs> and that itself creates a lot of interesting tensions uh, because how do you deal with the uh, people and the arguments who think that uh, it's either impossible or undesirable to view the university as, as in this way? Um, so I'm thrilled to have John on to talk about, uh, about this and more. Uh, welcome. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, Zohar. And it's really lovely to see you again. It's so wonderful. In these conversations, I, I try to bring a little bit of a personal dimension to some of the conversation, um, so even though a lot of my guests are, are great academics and thinkers, um, to just try to feel into what's at stake emotionally and holistically in these questions. And so my, my opening question for you is, and it's really fun for me not as a student to be able to ask some of these questions that maybe in office hours I would have felt intimidated to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but how and why did you become a philosopher or a political philosopher, an academic? And uh, how has the reality sort of met with that initial desire, that initial expectation? Yes. Yeah, so you ask how I became a philosopher and an academic as though those two things were the same. I saw them from the beginning as very different things. And in fact, when I was in my early 20s, I was militantly opposed to becoming a professor or being involved in the academy in any way, precisely because I was so committed to philosophy, or at least in my 22-year-old, 23-year-old, 24-year-old, 25-year-old mind, I thought that being a philosopher was actually incompatible with being an academic. And again, I emphasize that was in my 20, mid-20s um, year old mind. And so, but, but, but quite seriously, I, I really felt that philosophy was something that one has, to have, one has to have wisdom to do. And I had the belief then that wisdom was more important than skill sets. And I was concerned that 
if I ever ended up going to graduate school, I would fall into skill set world. And skill set world comes with criteria world in which you have to start hitting targets to keep moving. And I was aware of that, of that and I've been kind of, I don't know if this is even a, a coherent phrase, habitually allergic to criteria world all my life. I was a terrible, intentionally terrible student in uh, middle school and especially in high school. I routinely got, I was routinely, I love sports. And so I, what I really cared about in high school was trying to get 10 varsity letters. That's why I went to high school and sort of why I stayed in. And along the way, I had many meetings with my coaches and guidance counselors and principals and teachers to see they were, whether there was any way to get my D pushed up to a C so I could retain my athletic this, uh, eligibility. So early on, middle school, high school, I went to a very, ter I went to a, a really, um, a really intellectually backwards public high school in, in rural northern Vermont. And um, it was painful intellectually, literally painful for me to be there. My mother, in her wisdom, let me skip. We made a deal that if I stayed in, she'd let me skip one day every week. So one day of the week, religiously, uh, so to speak, I would skip school. I'd often skip school to do things that I cared about, which were to do with learning often. So along with the sports, which I was you know, very fanatically committed to in those days, uh, I also was a really serious reader. And my grandfather, my grandfather had, my grandparents had moved to this farmhouse in rural, rural northern Vermont in the 1940s. And it was a pretty backward place back then, <laughs> intellectually. But my grandfather had this thing you may have heard of, it's called the Harvard Five-Foot Shelf of Books. I don't know if you know about that, but it's a, it's a, you can find them in a used bookstore sometimes still. And he had this uh, small case of books, 50 books, all these great classics, speeches, um, just wonder, wonderful things. And a key little bit was that there was this little thin volume that was my, still, it's still an important part of my life. And it was called 15 Minutes a Day. And in that little slim volume, which I've gone through God knows how many times now in my life, it's a calendar of every day of the year. And you'll look up someday, you know, whatever, what is it, March 31st? And you'll see a little reading there. It could be something from Sophocles. It could be a 15-minute selection of reading from one of Lincoln's speeches. It could be a bit of logic from someone or other. And, and I would read that. And so I would, I, would, I would, almost every day when I was in high school, I'd re read 15 minutes of kind of interesting stuff, but never the stuff that they told me to do in high school. <laughs> but that was kind of my attitude when I went to college too. And um, I'd had some friends who had uh, financially stronger financial uh, groundings than, my, than I did in my family. My father died when I was very young and my mother raised me and my three sisters on her salary as a middle school art teacher. So we didn't have a lot of money. We lived in a beautiful old beat up farmhouse and we had the five foot shelf of books, um, but we didn't have a lot of money. And some of my friends early in high school headed off to elite private schools, St. Paul's, Deerfield, a few others. And we'll all, res we'll all do respect to my wonderful friends. I saw what the things they had to do to get into, into those places. And I saw them sort of get the values they learned there about getting into the next level of great places. And in my pride, in my pride and I hope, 
I hope also in my sincerity, I just turned my back on that whole world. It was probably self-destructive, who knows, but I intentionally went about not believing in the system. And that carried over, so I did terribly in college, in high school. In college, I started doing better, but I jumped around a lot. I was in, in and out of, I think, four different colleges and universities for various reasons. But I was always interested in learning. And I guess I was kind of skeptical about the institutions of learning and what they can do for a person. Um, to, make a long, to make a long story short, I eventually decided that to do philosophy, I actually needed more time than I could get in the world or I had to work. And that realization came to me painfully when I was living in Redwood City, California. I was working um, as a, as a, on a fence-building company. I eventually became a foreman, which was a big deal for me. And I routinely go out in the morning, pretty early in the morning. I'd ride my bike over there. From I lived in East Palo Alto. I'd ride my bike over. I, I, was, I dropped out of college. I'd been in four different colleges, hadn't graduated, but I was totally fine. I was learning and very, very, very confident in the world. This is now my early, early getting late-ish 20s. <laughs> and I would go out, head off every morning in my truck with my team. And we'd have the whole back of the truck loaded up with our fence building gear, loaded up so that when you unloaded it, it would all lay out across this fence. We chainsaw it up, put the old fence on our, on our truck, build a new fence, and then pull all the tools back, put them back on the truck in the same order so we could take them off. And it's a really great system they'd, they'd worked out. We basically knocked down a long fence every day, build a new one in its place, and drive home at the end of the day, really tired, but really excited about having finished a project. It was a really fabulous thing. But then the interesting bit was, <laughs> as we would drive back, me and my you know, kind, of, kind of rough friends, um, they dropped me off. We'd drive onto, onto the main street, heading towards our, 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 um, our garage where all the trucks were, and they dropped me off at the public library, and they'd go off to a bar. And have a beer or two, and then go. But I go to the public library and do my philosophy, and I vividly remember sitting in that public library in Redwood City, and working through John Rawls's The Theory of Justice, 587 pages, a classic of technical philosophy, trying to understand it, and having lots of um, will to to learn this theory, to understand what this theory is about. But after an hour or two. Of, of studying it, just feeling fatigue and feeling the tired that would just, I'd been through so much already. And I knew my friends were off at the bar. <laughs> I didn't want to be there with them. But it was, I, I came to realize sort of slowly through the months of trying to do philosophy on my own, not just philosophy, I was also reading some history and some other, I became interested, I became very interested in, in Hitler and in in the mind of Adolf Hitler for a while. And I was fascinated by that. But anyway, I did various things. I came to realize that I, couldn't do philosophy without energy and time. And so it, a, I, it sounds strange and it's kind of embarrassing to say out loud, but I compromised and agreed to go to graduate school. That's actually how I saw it. It was a, it was a right, so I, so I applied to graduate schools in philosophy, but I really felt like I was compromising myself and that this would sound terrible, but in some way I felt like it was the wrong thing to do and that I was only doing it so I could get time from them. And anyway, they rejected me. Every single place I applied to sent back in the return, placing the return mail, no. 
<laughs> so I was like, oh, the world won't let me in because I don't play by the, I haven't played by their rules. And that was kind of a shock to me. I eventually went back home to live with my mother, worked for a carpenter part-time, took the financial pressure off me so I had more time now. Eventually wrangled enough credits together and found professors willing to vouch for me. So I, got a, I was able to graduate from college and get a, get a degree. I never went through the ceremony, my poor mother. She didn't have the chance to see, you know, she, it meant so much to her that I would go to college because I barely got through high school. But she never got to see me graduate. Anyway, I graduated and applied again. And again, I got rejected everywhere except for one place. And I got into the University of Arizona, which happened to be a really wonderful, fabulous, up-and-coming philosophy program, especially in the theory of knowledge, which I've become very inter- interested in. So I, went off to, so I went off to Arizona. And when I got there, everything changed. Because in grad school, they say to you, what they say to you at Arizona at least was, write something interesting and get it published. We don't, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, studying stuff and like, you may remember from the class I taught at Brown, I used to often, I used to have these rules. So I, I tried to carry this stuff over into my life when I became a professor, shock, I mean, bizarrely became a professor. You may, I may have done it when you were in my, in my class, but I had this idea that, that I had since I was in high school, that the, that, that exam, the students should never be evaluated on an exam, for example, by the, the degree to which what they wrote was a, a response to the question that the professor had written. Who cares about that? I always thought that people should be evaluated on the quality of what they write, the quality of their ideas. Now, if you take that attitude when you're in high school and college, you're going to do sometimes really well and sometimes really badly, which is exactly what I did. But in graduate school, if you take that attitude and are really, and are really serious about the ideas, which I always had been in some weird way, you know, you get recognized. So, so, <laughs> so my first course, the first I took a course in um, – political philosophy, my first year in graduate school. And I wrote a paper about an idea about rights and virtues that I was just, I just was fascinated by it. And then basically there was this big debate about communitarians who are for virtue versus the liberals who are for rights. And I thought, well, you know, these concepts are actually connected at the base. Many of them are at least. So for example, generosity. It's hard to know that someone's being generous when they hand something to someone else unless you have a prior understanding publicly of who owns what. So rights, property rights, for example, are conceptually prior to virtues such as generosity, at least in many, in many areas. So I wrote a short paper from my professor that this big division between these two things is actually one's conceptually parasitic on the other. And, I, and he said, this is a pretty good, this is a pretty good, um, <laughs> this is a pretty good short paper. You should write it into your term paper. So I wrote this, this paper on this idea about rights and virtues. And uh, I was so fanatical about it. I wanted to talk to people all the time. I would occasionally, my then girlfriend, now wife, Amy, was living in Santa Fe. And we would sometimes meet in some places in between, uh, you know, just for a weekend together. But every time we would meet, all I'd want to do is talk about rights and virtues and this idea. And I was basically driving her batty because... You know, she wanted to talk about other things like our relationship or whatever. And all I wanted to talk about was <laughs> rights and virtues. And so I wrote, this, I wrote this term paper for it, and the professors liked it. And they said, you should send it off to Amy Gutman, this professor at Princeton, 
who went on to become a big a big influence in my life. And so I just sent this, you know, some random first year grad student at at Arizona, and I sent this paper off to this well known professor at Princeton, and got no reply. But the next summer, I was shocked to get a three page single space letter from her re- responding to my to my <laughs> to my piece at length and saying, "Hey, you should come to Princeton sometime. We, we should. I'd love to talk to you." And I just couldn't believe that some Princeton professor was saying to me, "I'd like to talk ideas with you." And my professors at Arizona. Um, they, they thought they thought my work was they thought my work was good, and 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 so they encouraged me to apply to to, to go to Oxford to do a BPhil, which is a two year, pretty hardcore degree in philosophy. So I applied to that, and shockingly, I got in, and I got a scholarship and whatever they they're, they're paying for it all. So I transferred from Arizona. I, I, I'm a I was a habitual transfer. Usually it was from you know a small liberal arts college to some night uh, night school or someplace. But anyway, this time I was transferring from. A good program in at Arizona, a very good program at Arizona, to a really good program at Oxford. And when I got to Oxford, um, that art, that paper I'd written, um, I think when I when I was applying, it got published by this journal called Ethics, which is the top journal is the top journal in political philosophy. The rejection rate is ninety seven percent. So it's a journal that you know all the top philosophers, political philosophers, are trying to get into. And I I'd written something as my first semester, <laughs> my first semester. <laughs> In um, graduate school, that got got published there. I published another one in there too while I was still in grad school. So I started fi- having success, and a lot of the a lot of the papers I wrote, like I wrote a paper about just you know, different things that interested me. I wrote a paper about the birth of fiction. I was very interested in some of Plato's dialogues as being um, better better described as falling within the genre of fiction than of philosophy. And that got published. And it's much basically everything, almost everything I wrote, every term paper in grad school got eventually got published somewhere. And so um, anyway, brief version was after being a disaster academically or institutionally, I got this chance to go to Oxford where where I did I did I did I, I, I was able to accelerate my learning there. That person from Princeton had been sort of following me and seeing, now seeing my publications <laughs> pop up on her radar screen. So she invited me to go to Princeton. Uh, to spend a postdoc year there after um, after Oxford, then I went to Stanford where I had my first job, and then got recruited to come back east where I'm from, um, to Brown. And my wife Amy had been sort of we'd been mar- we were married now, and um, she'd been at Brown, had done an MAT at Brown, and um, which was the first time I ever walked on the Brown campus was when I visited her there, and I was charmed by the place. And we'd had this deal that if Amy would just stay with me. And move around to these places I had to go to launch this career. That if I ever found a chance, we ever had an opportunity to move to a university that was in driving distance of our home in northern Vermont. She's also from the same small town I'm from in, in rural northern Vermont. <laughs> um, but if we ever found a chance to move to a university where we were in driving distance of having Thanksgiving together with our families in northern Vermont, then I would go no matter what. You know whatever else was involved going on in, uh, career-wise and regarding status. So Brown Brown came calling. <laughs> so I switched. It was kind of a hard switch in a bunch of ways. I loved I loved Stanford, but I was also really happy at Brown, as you probably remember. But the switch for me that was a big one was I switched from a philosophy department to a political science department, and that was kind of a, a significant um, change in my life. Thank you so much for sharing that. I loved it. That was a very emotional story, and I was sort of on a roller coaster there because I heard you talking about compromise, which which made me sad. You 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 have a story of a kind of like um, 
you could have been lost in the in the shuffle. You know, this this story could have turned out badly in all kinds of ways, which made me fearful. Um, there's a kind of story of of triumph in a way of uh, someone who's atypical in these elite institutions. You know, um, making it on the basis of merit, which is also, I think, amazing in some way. I mean, merit in scare quotes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I care. I care. I cared a lot. Yeah. And then um, I think there's also this maybe a through line I, I wanted to ask you about, which is sort of having a commitment to ideas, but then also working as a foreman and hanging out with these characters who are not so academic. You're sitting th- you're sitting there in the public library reading Rawls, <laughs> thinking about justice, getting fatigued from that, you know, while your friends are getting beers. And, um, you know, that that raises... That that that's quite an image, I think, and it's in a way it, it encapsulates a lot in in sort of the discourse in the culture right now, which is the the this, the cultural divide between the theorists who think that what they're doing is justice in some sense <laughs> uh, or truth, and uh, the mainstream or or the populace, the public, the sort of uh, democratic pulse of society which maybe isn't so book-learned and has intuitions about what ought to be, but certainly not going to be so principled about it. So um, I, I just wanted to flag what I think could be a potential tension there, you know, in terms of the, the mismatch between a book-learning and, and the everyday experience, especially on, an, on a topic that's supposed to be about, like, how to, what, would, what should be good and accept, morally acceptable to everyone, which I think is kind of a Rawlsian framework. And then I also wanted to flag this issue of, uh, you know, you wrote a book called Free Market Fairness, which is, a, I love it. It's a terrific book. And I, I love it on a, on a meta level because it's um, it's fusionist. It, it, it takes traditions that don't normally t- go together and says, look, they have a lot in common. And what you said about your first paper had a fusionist dimension as well, rights and virtues. So that seems to be a kind of vibe <laughs> that you go for, right, is is seeing commonality. And so I was wondering, you know, I just gave a, an offering of a story of tension, guys getting beers versus, you know, Rawls in the library. But I'm also wondering if maybe your diversity of experience has primed you in some way for a project of, of synthesis, a synthesis that's beautiful to you, but that might seem monstrous to outsiders. <laughs> Oh, uh, wow. Well, I'll say one thing that I just realized. Strangely, I hadn't quite got this till this very minute, just as you were speaking. I'm actually sitting right now in a public library in Bristol, uh, Rhode Island. And in a strange way, I left my, you know, Brown was incredibly generous with me and, and always just treated me incredibly, incredibly well. And they, they eventually moved into this pretty palatial, <laughs> palatial office with with a building and everything, whatever. They put me, they, 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 I was in a very pretty nice spot there. But I left that. I no longer have an office. So I'm actually sort of back where I was, God, I don't, you know, whatever, 35 years ago, I guess. I'm kind of, I have no office, to, I have no office to go to. I'm in a startup, I'm working at a startup organization in New York that has no office space. I work from home sometimes, but sometimes I, I often now come to a public, a, another, yet another public library phase of my life. I'm not quite sure that I'm ready to say that my colleagues at Brown and all the and my academic network at Princeton and other places are exactly analogous to the workers 
who I rode around in the trucks with back in Redwood City. I respect the people I rode around in those trucks with tremendously, and I respect my colleagues at Brown and across the academy also in, different, in a different way, but also very sincerely. But there is a sense, I think, in both cases in which I made a choice to leave them behind. Not that I don't admire what they do or think what they do is important, but for some weird reason, it wasn't the thing for me. It wasn't what I was aspiring to. I didn't. I never aspired to be a fence builder, a really, a really good fence. When I was building fences, I wanted to be good at building fences, and I saw, I saw the value and the, and the joy, in that challenge of actually finishing the, the long fence, um, by the end of the day and driving back to the to the truck yard, triumphantly having done it, just as I saw, when I was in the academy, you know, getting tenure and then then getting, getting winning an winning an endowed chair and then. You know, writing the book "Free Market Fairness," which is in many ways the most important. It was the, why it's why I went. It's why I went to graduate school to write that book. But once those things were done, there was something else I needed to do. So I know here I am again at a public library, trying to find my way towards the next, trying to make this next thing work. <laughs> Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, my favorite coffee not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Cometeer comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link cometeer.com Zohar to get $20 off your first order. That sounds very exciting to to do what you feel you need to do and and to feel a sense of freedom and agency to say no to things that um, you know from the outside look like victory, but I can imagine you know psychologically if they're if they're not addressing the whole person and and the the thing that wakes you up in the morning can be a kind of uh, you know a, a kind of uh, obstacle and sort of added on to that, the it's an obstacle. It's an extra obstacle. I felt this a little bit when I was at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, where you, you're sort of supposed to feel a certain way. Yep, <laughs> it's so desirable. That's right. And it's it can feel ungrateful. Let's say to to say you know what I'm looking for something more. That's right, and I think that I think that um, in both cases of my life, the the internal norms of the group you leave. To be strong for those group members, they require that there be some resistance to people who walk away. And I think there were actually three great moments of my life when I decided to walk away. One was walking away from the, my friends on the fence building team. The other was walking away from my colleagues in my career at Brown. But they were per the first one I'm just realizing was a big decision I make my junior year um, in high school. I've been on the ice hockey team, which was my favorite sport and the thing I was probably best at athletically. I've been on since I, was, I made the team as a freshman. And I decided, but we had to get up early in the morning to practice before school. And I would often have to um, sleep overnight at a friend's house. And then we'd walk, like a, we'd walk like a mile carrying our equipment bags through the snow in northern Vermont to wait, wait for the bus to pick us up. And sometimes we'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to practice. And doing that, playing that, playing hockey before school was incompatible with with doing doing even mediocre. Even if I even if I was trying, I couldn't could not have done well in school. So I, I quit the hockey team um, and left that group, which was a big big deal in my high school. 
and leaving them was you know, like a, a tearing away of norms for them. So there's something about that, about the tearing away of norms. I think for me, I was never so much about saying goodbye or, or walking away from people as I was going to something I needed to do. And that's how I felt when I left the hockey team. I needed to see whether I could, if I didn't have hockey, could I actually try to buckle down and, and try to get B's and A's for at least a semester or two in, in, a, in a row. <laughs> and so too, when I left the road crew, the, you know, sorry, the, the, the um, fence, fence team, you know, could I go to the academy and could I, could I do that? Because I, I didn't know whether I could, I hadn't done it yet. And now as I'm leaving my job at Brown to start this new venture with Heterodox Academy, it's the same kind of a question. You know, can I do this? Can I do this thing? Can I, can I actually try to make a difference with this organization? And I don't know the answer. That story's yet to be written. But anyway, those are kind of, um, seems, to be a, seems to be a steady a steady theme in my life, I suppose. I'm realizing as I talk to you. And after that, who knows? <laughs> Actually, I think I do know. <laughs> yeah? Oh, yeah. What is that? Well, I became an academic. And that's how I spent most of my life. But I've always been drawn to art. And in my family, my mother was an art teacher. So I grew up with art supplies and art junk all around the house. My sisters were drawing and painting and doing my aunts, my grandmother, everyone paints and draws. I never did much of it. I started, I was going through some old notes, my old Oxford philosophy notes uh, when I was clearing up my office from Brown. And I was stunned to find in my margins of a lot of my technical notes um, these elaborate drawings I was doing of my of my right hand. I'm left-handed, so I had all these drawings in my margins of my philosophy notes of my right hand. Tons and tons and tons of drawings of my right hand in different positions. So I started drawing, apparently, when I was doing philosophy. I didn't even know it. And about five years ago, I started taking courses at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, and I'm actually enrolled in a painting studies program. And I had this idea that um, before I die... I want to try to create three pieces of art, um, one for each of my children, and then just one to have around our house, for Amy and me to have around our house. And I, so I've been painting and drawing for a while, but I put it on the back burner because I've got a, this job's taking all my time and I don't have time to go to studios at night to paint anymore. But I think, I think, I think when I finish at Heterodox Academy, if all goes well with me there, I can imagine my last, the last act being to create three, to create, say, three pieces of art, if I can. So that's what I hope to do. I'm not saying I'm any good at it. I mean, that, that was also, the, as always, when you do these things, right? When you go off to these new worlds that you see from the outside and see the attractions from the outside, when you first enter those worlds, it's usually a shock when you realize just how bad you are at what you thought you were good at, or how bad you are, or how inadequate you are at what you claim to love. And you start to realize the price you have to pay to become truly good at doing this thing. And you know, often the price is, is paid in a coin that takes you away from what you wanted to do and you realize it wasn't the thing for you at all. But, and I, I felt some of that in the, art, in the art courses I took. First, oh my God, these RISD students are just ridiculously talented. My drawings look like stick figures compared to this. <laughs> these masterwork, these people are whipping off their, or flying off the ends of their pencils. But there's also a bit of a grind about the art, art studies world that I wonder about, as I found in other parts of my life too. We pay a price. The, 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 the rules wear. Passion is wasted on yeah. the, the talented and talent is wasted, wasted on the dispassionate. Maybe that's right. I was thinking more like the institutions 
wear on us. The institutional requirements kind of wear against us like a like a a hard edge on a soft block, and it kind of just it's. When I was going to grad school, a professor said to me, this amazing professor, he said to me, my one piece of advice to you is, don't go brain dead. And I said to him, what, the, what do you mean? I'm about to go to graduate school in philosophy. And he said, don't go brain dead. I just couldn't imagine, but I, but I, thought, about, I thought about that many, many times since. I think very often in the, in the act of gaining skills and, and credentials, that thing that maybe made us want to do that thing in the first place is vulnerable to being worn away, rubbed down, broken, indented in some disforming way. And it's hard to maintain integrity to the things you love because the things we love are just ideas. The world makes demands of us. We have, you know, we, we're, we're human beings. We have, we have limited time. We need to sleep. We need to eat. There's stuff we need to do, you know. It can't just be the project. The project's always in the context of these institutional realities. And they rub, they rub on us. That, that description reminds me of uh, a moment in Strauss and Leo Strauss's correspondence with Alexander Kashev in On Tyranny, which is about uh, you know, whether the philosopher can or should be involved in political life and institution building. Kashev thought that the end of history could be achieved and would be achieved when intellectuals lent their wisdom to uh, governance. And then he himself stopped being a professor and became a kind of architect of the European Union um, and sort of doubled down on bureaucracy as the end of history. And Strauss took a more pessimistic view that sort of never the twain, never the twain shall meet. Uh, the, the philosopher pursuing politics is sort of as vulgar as the philosopher, the philosopher giving up an extra hour of feet to sleep or to, you know, lust after uh, sexual desire or to go pursue nice food. Uh, it's all it's all it's all bad from the point of view of philosophy, which is just, you know, this pure thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And on that point, by the way, I remember at Stanford, uh, we had a we had a professor that we were trying to recruit. And um, I remember at one point of our dinner, someone saying to him, the weather's really, it's, you know, you'll love living here. It's, it's fantastic weather. And he replied, why would a philosopher care about the weather? And I thought to myself, this is the person you want to hire. <laughs> he said, so, so, well, why would, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why would I care about the weather? I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's braggadocio, but you know, whatever. Yeah, no, that's, that's <laughs> absolutely hilarious and appalling all at once. Uh, I, I have to say uh, a, a witty uh, repartee to that would be, well, Montesquieu was a philosopher who cared deeply about the weather on philosophical grounds because he thought that um, people's judgments and normative commitment, everything all the way down is actually deeply informed by climate, right? And there's a whole genre of, of, of books these days that tr tries to look at something in that sort of ecological yeah. level and say it's actually those things that form us, it's sort of even before culture forms us. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm not sure what to make of that. I used to I used to deeply believe that was true. I remember reading some Montesquieu lines about that when I was in high school. It was one of my fifteen it was in my one of my fifteen minutes a day readings. And I remember thinking of myself, it was it was like electricity when I heard that idea. I said, Oh my God, I never thought this could be true. And I and I knew it from my own experience because I've been born and raised until I was um, nine in New Hampshire, 
And then when my father died, we moved back to my mother's house. My mother had grown up in, in Vermont. And Vermont and New Hampshire have very different political climates, at least back then they did. Vermont's very soft and gentle, and New Hampshire's kind of flinty and Republican. And of course, the terrains of the two states mirror that exactly. There's a lot of granite and toughness and woods and darkness and um, self-reliance, let's say, in New Hampshire. And there's a gentle rolling greenness about Vermont. And so I was just arrested by that Montesquieuian line because I realized, oh my God, it's, I know from my own limited, little, even the little tiny world I live within, I could see it was true. But I think it's baloney. I, I don't think that's, I think it's total nonsense. I think it's complete nonsense. <laughs> Forget, forgetting the like exact point about sort of climate influencing us. What about, you know, there's a, a book that recently came out uh, by a, a Harvard uh, professor called Weird, which makes the argument that um, the church banning uh, marriage between cousins in the Middle Ages or late antiquity basically led to a dissolution of sort of kinship bonds and that that um, in turn kind of gave rise to a culture of individualism because uh, people felt less like sort of less of a commitment uh, to keeping it in the family. And so sort of what started off as just a taboo around a certain definition of incest is, is the reason why, let's say, modern Westerners have a more atomized society and, 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 you know, take the individual as the starting point and so on and so forth. What do you, what do you, uh, forgetting kind of the, the empirical validity of the claim, like, what do you make of arguments to that effect, sort of arguments that want to um, ground our moral intuitions in a, in a story of sort of macro historical development that's beyond our control? I think they're a lot of fun for parlor games. I don't really think they have much traction in terms of understanding the world. Not that I don't love them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a total sucker for the big grand idea that explains it all. I was for, for over a year when I was at Oxford, I was a complete Aristotle maniac. Just absolutely, I read book two of the physics where he talks about, which I think is the core of the whole, the whole, war, the whole opus. It's a crazy, crazy opus. But then book two of the physics, Aristotle talks about change and what it means to be a natural thing, to have this internal principle of change. And like, you know, probably the grandest, the biggest one idea explaining everything that there's ever been is teleology. But, you know, come on. The world's so, so complex to, to, to think that's going to be, I can't remember, what's the guy's name? I used to, I used to always see his posters around Redwood City, the Rajneesh, the guy that wore the pink clothes. Anyway, people who have a grand theory to explain it all, you know, I, I love the ambition, and it's great for a cocktail party, makes a great dinner conversation, but please, the world's so complicated, so beyond what we understand. I think we are, even on the, even the easy questions, the easy questions that we can't answer, questions like how should we live together, questions like uh, what's right, questions, even simpler ones like well, how should the economy be organized, we can't answer those questions. Never mind. Never mind the real questions. Never mind the questions about life and meaning and value, like deep, deep value. There's that line or a metaphor from Catholicism. I'm Catholic, and there's this line from Catholicism, or at least a, an image that I've often heard priests talk about, that for us to understand the Creator is very much like a worm trying to understand us. 
and I think about that sometimes. <laughs> I, I don't take I don't think I don't take the parameters of the analogy as as God given just because a priest was the people who mentioned them to me. But I do think there's something really striking about that, and I I, I really enjoy trying to think about. I've done this, you know, I like I like to do this sometimes. Think well, what would it be like to think like a worm, and for there to be out there something like a human with consciousness, and what would it be like if that worm somehow the worm probably couldn't even do this, tried to ask itself, what would it be like? What's the nature of that thing? And the fact, by the way, that the worm probably isn't capable of forming anything even like that question means that if the analogy is roughly, even roughly true in terms of our relationship to God, our minds to God, it probably means the questions we're asking about re- what we call religious questions are probably as malformed or as, as just stunted and benighted as the equivalent question a worm might attempt to ask using a worm brain about what a human consciousness might be. So that's, that's kind of like a you know, kind of a crazy, weird, deep thing you could go down to think that think that through. Um, maybe it's maybe it ends in nihilism. That is, we just have no hope of knowing why we're here or what we're what's what it's about. But I don't know. That's not a, if that's the case. That's not a terrible outcome to me. It seems to me. I mean, I I I hear it less as nihilism and more as skepticism, which you know is a kind of um, it's skepticism like fire it can. You know, it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. It can be used uh, to burn down and it can also be used to, to cook and to warm. So skepticism, uh, hit, is, skepticism can be used in a positive way? I think it often is. Um, so give, I, give, give an I'll, example. Give an example. Well, I'll, I'll give you um, – I'll leave it to the listener or to you to decide which one is the positive and which is the negative. Okay. <laughs> okay. But um, I think there's basically two ways that skepticism can go. One is – so skepticism can be used as a uh, as a weapon against authority because um, if the authority is claiming knowledge and you are a skeptic, then it's o- it's over promising, it's over claiming that authority. So um, from that point of view, skepticism is uh, is a is a point of critique, and the consequence of that might lead to something more anarchic, something more individualist. You, if we're putting it in uh, sort of contemporary framework, we might say it's Hayekian in some way because it's sort of saying, like, you're claiming to have top-down knowledge of the truth, you you philosopher king. I, I'm not here to say I have a better answer. I just know that you're wrong. And so, you know, that's enough for me to sort of uh, liberate myself from the grand inquisitors out there, right? Um, but there's another turn... I see that in existentialists like Kierkegaard, uh, who sort of say, well, if reason can't deliver what it's promised, then I might as well take a leap of faith. I might as well be an existentialist. Um, But, you know, for me, my favorite skeptic is Montaigne. And Montaigne was a Catholic (laughs) in, you know, in the during the Counter-Reformation. And his argument is that... um, not only does the church not know uh, because it's claiming authority, but the Lutheran uh, Reformation also doesn't know. <laughs> In other words, the skepticism goes all the way down. And so when you're faced with um, ignorance to your left and ignorance to your right, ignorance above and ignorance below, what can you rely on? You have to rely on something. And so you might as well rely upon the time-tested thing. You might as well go with tradition. Sort of tie goes to inertia. So skepticism is actually conservative because who are you? T- 
who are you to claim that you know better? Um, and so, you know, I think Nassim Taleb, he's a, sort of a pop, you know, finance writer, but he, he works in a skeptical tradition. He cites Sextus Empiricus and Karl Popper as his influences. And he, he coined a term, I mean, he didn't coin the term, but he really popularized a term that, that now is kind of taken off in, in the Twitter sphere, which is Lindy. So, like, uh, uh, just for those who, who don't know this, this term, I guess there's, a, you know, a restaurant, Lindy's, in New York City, where people would get together and, and they talk about um, mathematics and philosophy and whatever else. And um, they, the, a bunch of people came up with this theory that sort of if a play has been around, on Broadway for 100 days, then it's, it's more likely to continue for some period of time than if it hadn't reached that threshold. So there's sort of a some power to continuity where once you've reached, uh, you've established yourself, the chances of continuing to, to establish yourself go up. That's not true for all things. That's rather of the things, the things for which that's true, those things have the quality of Lindy or Lindiness. And so this was a long-winded way of saying, I think the skeptic like Montaigne is basically saying there's Lindy. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not debating the question of what's good or bad, what's true or not true. I'm going to go with what's sustainable. What's sustainable is what's lasted. Yeah. What's lasted. That's funny. I think I, 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 I'm tracking that. I'm definitely tracking what you're saying. And I'll, I'll give you one, one, one other, one other thinker who I think kind of in a way is a more 21st century, 20th century Montaigne is Wittgenstein. Like Wittgenstein was a, a skeptic who also, not that this is original to him, but he also kind of p points out that you can't really be a skeptic about everything all at once. You have to have something that you're holding to be certain or that you're holding to be established while doubting everything else. And so um, to translate that back into the Montaigne paradigm, it, you, you need some groundwork, you need some tradition, you need some heritage or some community on the basis of which to be skeptical. skeptical skepticism is thus a form of reform, but you can never actually be a revolutionary skeptic and live in the world. You can never, <laughs> be, a, you can never be a revolutionary skeptic and live in the world. That's interesting. I think of myself in that way. Like you mentioned compromise. I mean, I, I see a lot of issues uh I'm, we're not going to get into specifics but you know within judaism and religion um i'm no, nonetheless i consider myself a committed jew I'm, I'm even a rabbi whatever that means you know in part because of this montaigne argument which is um i would rather throw in my vote with tradition and try to make it better than throw it all out and start from scratch and think i'm going right. to be better than tradition the phrase you used, what did you say? You can't be a what kind of skeptic and live in the world? A deep skeptic? Revolu oh. Revolutionary. Yeah, so, you know, I immediately thought of um, Noam Chomsky, who seems to me to be a revolutionary skeptic. And I think he lives in this world, or lived in, the, lived in this world at his height. Um, I, don't just, I don't just mean the philosophy of language stuff, which is obviously, you know, uh, pretty fundamental. But I mean more the political activities he was so involved in. He might be someone like that. I'm not sure. Um, but I also want to mention that you know, as you were doing those moves about skepticism, I think you kept popping in and out of two different perspectives. One was, or maybe I was doing it as I was listening to you to try to see what they looked like from the two different directions. Um, looking at the situation from the outside, our condition, as it were, from the outside, 
as opposed to looking at it first personally from the inside. So, for example, the, the worm example I gave, right? The, the example of the worm trying to understand the mind of a human being analogous to, analogous to the human mind trying to understand the mind of God. How do you look at that, right? We can look at it from the outside and the assumption that there is, let's, let's just play, play with the assumption that there is uh, a worm trying to understand what a human being, human mind is like, or that there's a human trying to understand what God's mind is like. That's from the outside, right? Because we set, we set the thing up, we frame the question externally, and then we try to go inside and see internally what that's like. But which one, all we really have is in, in some sense is at the inside. And so like with religion, you know, for me, I, 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 you, said, you, you said it in a way that, 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 that struck a chord with me, and it's something my daughter calls me out on all the time, uh, my Catholicism is so entwined with my desire to be part of a line of people, including my father, who died at you know, seven, I was very young, to be part of a line of people who share a belief, system of belief and a system of, of ritual practices. And such a, the, the, the part of me that's drawn to Catholicism is, is not just doctrinal, or my daughter says not even doctrinal, <laughs> it's very much wanting to be a Catholic, wanting to be part of this tradition because I want so much to be connected to my father and my grandfather and his and their my grandparents and so on, all, everyone in my family, the ones who are dead, especially. And I'm not sure that's inside or outside, but I, I think from the inside, we don't know whether where, you know. From the inside, I might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm getting this good. I'm getting this good of connecting, doing rituals that I know my my father did and my grandfather, my grandparents did. But that's all internal. And that can be an internal good, but is it true that I'm tracking some important truth about the world and my, the reason why I'm here? I should have, I should be asking that question more often than I do, my daughter would say. And it's revealing that I probably don't. It's probably revealing that I don't, that I think more about the connection. Anyway, It's an internal good that's shared by a lot of people, I think. I mean, um, even if, let's say, like the Lutheran argument is on, on uh, factual grounds, correct, that you can sort of have an unmediated relationship to God <laughs> and that, you know, often authorities and institutions are corrupt um, and giving you baloney. Um, I still think that the end result of that isn't flourishing or happiness on the whole um, <laughs> because people also want to participate in what you just described. They want to feel connected to their ancestors. They want to feel that they're going to give something to their descendants. If the starting point is it's all up to the individual to, you know, to to accept or to veto, then there's no continuity. There's no community. And I think, right, um, it's interesting because you're a classical liberal and a Catholic. I'm a, probably a classical liberal and a Jew. <laughs> Those two things don't obviously go together. Um, you know, I would say the way that I square the circle, if I even square it, is something like politically, I want to live in a in a world of liberty, but religiously or spiritually, I don't think that liberty is going to get you to where you want to go. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure what liberty has to do with. Well, there's an. Well, I think it has a lot to do with individuality, liberty, this sort agree. of autonomy, as 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 the highest. Yeah, good. Some, liberty seems to me to be something deeply about this world. So just a, a, a just a brief thing that you may find you may find interesting when I when I was in grad school I left I left Catholicism entirely as a superstitious submaronic belief system that whatever 
people who don't hadn't become educated would, would know. And for years, I just thought it was you know my professors at Oxford and other places they 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 weren't they weren't serious Catholics. And it was only later in my life that I came to realize that those deep things that the philosophers I, that I thought the philosophers were studying were not deep things at all. That in fact, becoming a philosopher for me in many ways was a turning away from the things that actually were deep, the deep questions in life. And when my some years ago, when my wife Amy became very ill, um, she was diagnosed with ovarian ovarian cancer when we had young children, and she almost died several times. But when she first became, Amy first became ill, we happened to be walking by a Carmelite monastery just women, just nuns. And we went in and started going there on a regular basis to sit in. And I started to, to meet these nuns, and I eventually became very close to them. And when I returned, I returned to my faith, to the faith, primarily because of them. But the little bit that I wanted to mention is that these nuns, um, these Carmelite nuns, um, they were very involved in the community that is the world of action, the world that we're in right now, the world that I'm in, for example, trying to change a difficult set of institutions. And yet for them, they would, they would receive prayer cards from people who are sick or in need of help in various ways. But they would never venture out from the, from the monastery to be involved in the communities. Instead, they, as they put it, they interacted with the world on the level of prayer. So they would collect these prayer cards, for example, the one for Amy and her ovarian cancer and, and the, the pain my, my family and I were going through. And they would react to that by, and they would, they would attend to that by going to their cells and simply praying for us. And that to me was just a, a, a that's my religious faith, my, my sense of Catholicism is very tied to their worldview and the way they act. It's not reason, it's not individual individuality. It's nothing to do with liberty, I don't think. Those are framing conditions for liberty that they can have that monastery, sure, but what they do in that cell is something deeply mystical, deeply lonely, often they would tell me. They would go, they would tell me often that they would go and to try to pray for Amy, but God would not come to them. And they would sit there like in a desert waiting for God to come so they could try to help Amy on the level of prayer, but God would deny them even that. And still they would wait and sit for God to come to give them a chance to try to pray. And that's just a fascinating way to think about agency in the world. And it's so different than the world we live in. I'm in a world now, the Heterodox Academy, where I'm trying to help our organization improve the quality of universities that are desperately in need of, of help. I, I know they are. But I can't just sit in my library here in, Bering, in the Bristol Public Library <laughs> and, and, and beam good attentions, wait for the God of the university, the, the university system to come to me and listen to me and hear my prayer, that we start listening to each other better and speaking more bravely and more openly and become a real community of learners like we should be. I have to actually you know, pack up my bags and go back down to New York and meet with people and start trying to change the organization and activate people to do for, take on certain battles, battles which are in themselves often very difficult and um, but ones that need to, need to be waged, I think, if we care about things in this, wor in this world. That was very deep and very moving. I, I was tempted to make a joke, but not in the best, it was not in the best tastes. But but I, I well I'll, I'll share it anyways because I, I think it pivots to a, a point of substance, which is just I was you know imagining the inter interceding with the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, you you want me to help you with cancel culture? I left myself canceled. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, 
but I think I think the, you know the deeper point in that is is actually the idea which you get in Christianity, you get it in in versions of Judaism as well of sort of one of the powerful uh, theological views of God is not that God is omnipotent, but rather that God suffers with us. That you know sort of the consolation for some and for others, it's it's the opposite of a consolation, is that God can't make it better or fix it, but God has been there too, or God is there with us. Yeah. That's in Boethius, I think. I have this snap, I have a sort of a snapshot education because I didn't get a real, <laughs> real, real one. But from, from a 15 minutes a day reading, I remember some section of Boethius, the constellation of philosophy where he talks like that. There's a little tidbit there. Mm. I think there's like sort of in an activist culture and generally like a capitalist culture of trying to make things better, more efficient, more productive, a lot of emphasis on victory and if you don't succeed, you're a failure. And I think, you know, this there's a certain religious or mystical tradition, you might accuse it of being quietist, which is in some sense the opposite view, that you're not going to succeed. Life is fundamentally frail, you know, vulnerable, um, it's suffering, but there's something to be learned from that experience if you can bear it there's compassion available in it there's a kind of a meaning that can open up in that sublime pain and uh if you're just focused on the i can then you're just you're not doing it right god this is really killer for me you say you say that because um you know after my father died i remember my mother i, th- I mean maybe i made this maybe i make this up but i just I, I think it's true and it motivates so much of what I've done I do in my life. I remember her saying to me at nighttime that life is short, Johnny. What difference are you gonna make in this world? And what I remembered was that for years when she was said to me at nighttime, sitting on my bed, I would just hear the first part. Life is short. That reminded me that my father had died and it was like an icy dagger in my heart. But later on, as I grew a little older, I started to hear the second part of that. What difference are you going to make in this world, given that life is short? And I really feel that way, and that's very much how I how I, how I, I live. That I, I I do try to think that part of the the mystery of life does involve the fact, crucially, that here we are now, with a short period of time, with a whole world that we can visibly see out there, with problems that we know are real, that are identifiable issues, that we could, if we wanted to work on, address, apply ourselves to, to try to improve the world a little bit. And that's for sure. That's, whether, whether our efforts can improve it is you know, unclear, but the fact that there are identifiable problems in this world that we could attend to, it can be the problem of raising your child well in, in a loving, caring way. It could be the problem of you know, trying to reform a university. It could be the problem of uh, trying to run for office or advance a certain political a view of the world, or lots and lots of different things it could be. Um, but those things are real. And I think that life is kind of a mixture of these things that we know are real, and that therefore, because we know that, we, have, we should apply, appropriately apply ourselves to them, even though that means taking ourselves away from the ways of being in the world that are more lovely, that are more, that are more quietist, as you put it, that are more... Um, at peace, more wu-wei, right, to use a Taoist kind of expression. Um, 
Uh, that's how, that's how I live, anyways. I, I, I maybe I think when the, I think about the painting part of my life. That section later on as being a time of contemplation, where I sort of stop trying to change things in the world, and I start just being, you know, one with painting. But I also know from my from my little preliminary experience hanging around RISD students in the studios on the weekends that man, those artists, those, those, they're as hardcore as they get. <laughs> and they're not and they're not doing woo way man they're, they are this is not the uncarved block they are they are carving that block very precisely and applying criteria of excellence and all the and all the rest of the junk that we all know so well from this world <laughs> yeah i go back and forth i go back and forth with myself on on a lot of these issues as well um you know i think one way that i sometimes try to reconcile let's say the attitude of you have to have an impact with this more uh contemplative vibe of uh, what about pursuing truth or, or connection to God or whatever it is as an end in and of itself. One way that I sometimes uh, try to reconcile that is I say, you can't actually be effective and have the best impact if you don't go to that place of suspending your desire for impact. Um, but it's a kind of utilitarian argument for non-utilitarianism. I think there's something disingenuous about it. Um, and then another argument, which is maybe more eudaimonistic, is just that, you know, life can't just be about go, go, go. Like six days a week shall you work and the seventh day shall you rest. So, you know, do both. Um, maybe the ratio of six to one is good. Like, <laughs> I, you know, some people don't need Shabbat. They need they need to work. But a lot of people work really hard and they could they could use with some concept of, of Sabbath in their life. Yeah. So that's concept of Sabbath. I mean, it's an interesting puzzle about that, right? Because this it means you shall not work. I guess that could be filled in with a concept like leisure. Let's say, let's say we will assign. Let's let's say work six, leisure one. So what's work we could work on? We could talk about. But let's let's put that aside as kind of a given. What's leisure now? And you know, as you know, there's this lots of. I, I taught a, I taught a, I taught a graduate course on this uh, um, a few years ago with a. A wonderful postdoc at Brown. Her name is Julie Rose. She's a professor at at, um, at Dartmouth now. We taught a grad seminar on, on work and leisure, and she was really interested in in that political idea that a society as wealthy as ours, and I mean by ours I mean broadly Western, but includes the East now in many places, many ways too, should have space for leisure, where leisure means something like there's, as you know, there's different theories of leisure, but at least something like you know. That what work is Aristotle says work is for leisure. Right? The reason why there's an oikos, an economy, a household, is for the sake of the good life, which is a certain different kind of activity. And on that approach, the six days become for that seventh day. But then what does that seventh day mean to us? A lot of the time I spend that seventh day like I spent the time in the library uh, back in Redwood City just exhausted from the stress of the sixth that came before it. <laughs> As though that, you know, it's, it, it, the price you pay to do the six means that on the seventh, you're not able to do leisure. You're doing recovery. I mean, usually I'm working that day too, for parts, <laughs> for parts of it. But I don't know what, it's interesting. Maybe it's we could be, maybe we could be pluralistic about what leisure is. You know, keep it keep it open, but certainly say what leisure isn't. So, you know, I think um, like Hannah Arendt, who's kind of a snob, writes about this problem. She says sort of like um, 
the rise of the middle class gave people a lot of free time, but it didn't give them leisure because they didn't know what to do with their free time. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I extrapolate that and I, you see this sort of in Adorno in the Frankfurt School as well, because they're they're all snobs. Um, something like, uh, you know, the, the, the bourgeois uh, have time off from work and they go and they, wa- they, they consume mass culture or now they even produce mass culture. You know, they do TikTok selfies or whatever. You know, that is not leisure. That's like a, it's a complete corrosion of, of, <laughs> of, of why we're giving them dignity in the first place. Like sort of like this, this the freedom is wasted on them. And, and, and you could even go you know deeper and say there's no time off now in the creator economy because people... I see this kind of from the left, like an argument from the left from Foucault's types or sort of say people are so subjectivized. They're so like in a way they've put their surveillance state upon themselves that even when they're not at work, they're performing a kind of self-commodification that really is so disassociated from anything that would, you know, bring them (laughs) joy or flourishing. Yes. (laughs) No, that that reminds me, that reminds me of uh, uh, what I thought was a great moment at the time in in my, my life when I was, when I was in Oxford, I was um, a pretty hardcore, I was just moving into political thought for the first time, and I was really captivated by a pretty strict utilitarian, uh, sorry, a pretty strict libertarian political philosophy. And so being a libertarian, I was, to learn about that, I thought I should learn about Marxism, which seemed to me to be a kind of opposite. So I really got into Marxism, reading Marxist Mag- Marxism Now magazine every month. And, and I, I went to a study group run by David Harvey at Oxford. It was on the side. We were reading through Das Kapital and some other some other works, by the Grundrisse and some other stuff by Marx. But I remember when at one point, Mark, we were reading the section where Marx says that in capitalism, eventually the needs of capital will require that the factories run 24 hours a day and people will work nonstop, they work in the nights and everything like that. And I remember triumphantly telling, telling David Harvey, you know, this whatever Oxford philosopher, that I, there's an antidote to that in reality that I know from my time in rural, rural northern Vermont. Because there was this guy I knew who um, his name is Mr. Barrett, who worked the night shift at IBM. And they paid him like time and a half because he worked this miserable night shift. And what he did with his money was he was kind of this big trailer kind of thing, but he built a small pool outside his um, outside his house and had this really cool sports car thing that he kind of jacked up that he'd drive around and he'd go to um, you know local Thunder Road race car track things on weekends and everything. So he had disposable income to live a great life that he thought was great. I thought to myself, yeah, Marx is right. People are going to have all this time. They're going to work all the time. The factories will be open all the time. But that's going to give the opportunity for the Jimmy Barretts of the world to actually live a life that he never could have dreamt he could have left, lived. Now, I hadn't yet read the authors you mentioned, Ardorno and others. Arendt is probably the best one. And you described them as snobs, which I, I, get, I know what you mean. But I do wonder about that little from Marx to Jimmy Barrett example to what is a good life? Is it? aspiring to have a little pool in your backyard. I feel that. I mean, I know from growing up without much money that when you create something for yourselves as a family that you've built with your own work, there's just something magical about that. But then you can also look at it through the, John Stuart Mill's the same way and Keynes as well. You could say, well, what's that for? Really? That's, that's, that, that can't be, that, that work can't be valuable in itself because the product of it is so obviously not human beings at their best. They're just going to race car tracks and cheering on number nine versus number 16 while the engines roar in your ears for God knows how many hours. 
So I'm sure to make I'm sure to make of all that. Those are those are those are value questions, right? They're too too deep for us for, for, sure. for we we worms. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a good question, and and I think the thing that really uh, sort of ate in my conscience when I was a, a grad student was less the like what are the hoi polloi doing at the racetrack and more, and more the question, the self-examination question of is Oxford just a glorified racetrack? Great. I love it. Is, uh, I love it. Is, is, is producing, you know, papers that nobody's going to read, but a few people are going to just quibble with it and presenting at conferences, you know, and, and, know. and working your way up the ladder uh, and getting all this status, not just a basically self-aggrandized version of the same, only without, you know, at least these people are breathing in the open air and we're like, like sitting in the stacks, I like hear, living you know, from the neck up. You know, I hear you, but I also know that there's something wrong about that. There is something, there are accomplishments, there are flowers that come f- from these brutal processes, for example, the brutal processes uh, in my world, in the academy, the, the truncation, the mutilation, the, the things one has to go, the, the self-disciplining of your mind, the, cor- the correcting, the bringing yourself into channels, pruning yourself, making yourself from a wild oleaster into a, a tightly aimed bonsai. There is something that can come from that that is absolutely beautiful. I'm thinking, for example, of that book that I couldn't read when I was in trying to, I was trying to read, but I couldn't understand when I was in when I was in Redwood City. Rawls is a theory of justice. Once you see it, once you see what is actually what the theory is, once you get through the 587 pages a couple of times and step back and look at it, it's just beautiful. It's just something awe-inspiring. And the fact that you can get yourself to a place where you can see the beauty of such a thing even though you weren't the one who created it, for example, is just an awesome accomplishment. And there are so many areas of our lives where people have produced these kinds of accomplishments. And I, I, I'm talking about academic and intellectual ones, but I think there's probably others. There clearly there are others too. A life can be an accomplishment in all kinds of interesting ways. But I just want to emphasize that there is something interesting about the mutilation that we go through in some disciplines, especially academic ones, nonetheless in some strange way can produce exceptional bounteous beauty it's odd but that resonates that resonates it's deeply odd, right? i i i certainly went through the mutilation process and uh it's weird right? <laughs> live to tell the tale but I, I i wouldn't have done it if i if i didn't fall in love over and over again with you know these great thinkers and texts I, it reminds me of a of a line from i think song of songs uh that i uh, quoted uh, from at the end of when, when I graduated rabbinical school, which was my 12th year in higher education. Uh, and my, I guess, if you consider that I I did schooling from age five until, uh, I don't know, age uh, 28 or something, 29. That's like, that's a lot of school. That's a lot of discipline. And the, li- the line was um, great waters um, cannot vanquish love. And uh, there's an interpretation of that line that the great waters refers to great learning, great great mastery. And the, the point is, the reason why you're pursuing this mastery is because you have this love. And no amount of learning is going to take that away from you. But 
we 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 have the assumption, the suspicion that it might. So that's why it needs to be said. That's like the that's like what that might be like what the professor was saying to me when he said when I was going to grad school, don't go brain dead. Because what's that love thing you talked about? Well, love might be something like curiosity. Just wanting to know, just being wondering what's out there, wondering how things could be different than they are. And does the ocean, does, can the ocean vanquish curiosity? I'm not sure that, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure that analogy. <laughs> I don't, I don't maybe know. it's a mixed metaphor, but maybe it is. Uh, I think of it as like maybe to bring it back to like philosophy. So philosophy begins in wonder, but where does it end? Does it, does it, does it end in a doctrine or a theory or uh, a program or a school? And I think that the point is, yeah, it, it, it may, and maybe it should, but whatever it ends in, it shouldn't vanquish that wonder that initiates it. The wonder is the kind of always to be preserved in it. And then just related to, to Sabbath, I, maybe that's right the six days and the seventh day. Maybe that's the, the seventh day is that the, the origin of it all. It's the, it's, the, it's the wonder, but the six days is like, how do you translate it? How do you, how do you make it actionable? Yeah. You say vanquish. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say that, you know, it's it's odd. I there's another thing that can happen that happens in life where we complete something. There is an idea of completion, I think, or fulfillment. And I really felt for me that I wandered a long time in philosophy. And when I wrote a, when I wrote Free Market Fairness, I expressed. I read it differently in some ways now, but I expressed what I think. What I think about, polit- about political, about the, I, I expressed, I was able to provide my own answer to Aristotle's ancient question, how should people live together? And when I wrote that book, I mean, I was glad that it, whatever, came out, had a lot of different reprints and whatever it was, but it got, got attention. But for me, it was a kind of a completion. And when I, once once it was over and all the sort of you know a couple of years after I was you know going around talking to people and talking with everyone who would I disagree with about and have a chance to take them on, and once that sort of tour was over, I felt like I had oddly done what I had started to do, and it was time now for me to I could I was feeling this is strange to say but I was feeling that by staying at Brown, I'd be kind of like running through my life in a way that was no longer true to me. Much as I love Brown, I love the teach. I increasingly, I think, love the teaching of Brown. I, I became more and more a lover of my students in seminars and just interested in their minds. But that increasingly just, I, but I something gone. Some, a certain kind of the fire had gone out regarding producing a, a piece of writing expressing what I thought about politics, which had driven me for so long. That was done, and a new kind of fire, kind of was that had been kindling for a while, started becoming a it kind of caught my attention. Wow, what about the experience of students in colleges? What about the, what, what, what's happening on campuses? What, who else is going to learn? Who else is going to have a chance to grow and say what they think in their own way? And what are the opportunities that could be made available to them? Or should, what, what obligation do we have, people like me, who have, who have experience, what obligations do I have to try to help others have the environment where they can experience freedom of thinking, explore whatever ideas they might have, become fusionists in their own weird ways to get that experience of knowing what they think about political philosophy. These two students came to my office one day. One was a college Republican, 
I would write their articles in the Brown Daily Herald about why abortion was wrong or whatever unpopular view he would take. And the other one was a supermodel, literally a supermodel, who um, was a really good writer also for the Brown Daily Herald, writing about the really skillful articles about the democratic position. Anyway, they came to me because they designed a course looking at multiple ideologies because they felt they hadn't learned why anyone could be, why an intelligent person could vote Republican. So designed their own course and wanted me to co-sponsor it. But the thing they said to me was, I think it was Rob who said it to me, he said, I didn't come to the university merely to, become, merely to become a skillful defender of some inherited ideology. Instead, right, he came to the university to be a leader, to be a thinker for himself, to be someone who at some point would have figured out what he thinks about Aristotle's question, how people should live together. And that's what universities, that opportunity is what universities should be could be providing to students. But it has to come from this kind of un, this kind of wonderful thing that I see among 18-year-olds every year. And that's how I freak out when I when the freshmen arrive on campuses. You know, this 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 um, this impatience with the given. This un, they, at first they're excited to be becoming more skillful defenders at inherit, inherited ideology, and they start to realize, wait a minute, I'm in danger of becoming merely a more skillful defender of somebody else's inherited ideology, instead of becoming a person who might be an individual himself or herself, themselves, an individual who has a view that is their view. It'll be defective, every view is defective, but it'll be their view. And that gives it a kind of a completion, a kind of, a kind of accomplishment that um, we owe people, or at least we owe them the chance, those, those who still want it, we owe them the chance to be like that. <laughs> Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.